Hello and welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Don Helbig, alongside Ryan Sir, and today we're going to talk about leaving the world of paper behind when you visit an amusement or theme park and downloading the park's mobile app. Yeah, it's a very exciting conversation, Don. You know, when we were developing this episode, it's uh, one thing that was really kind of exciting is that although we're talking about this now, this has been a conversation between us for 10 or 15 years. You know, we've always been bouncing ideas back and forth about how to improve a mobile app and having a, a wish list for mobile apps. And, you know, uh, some of those have come to fruition. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think you always want to keep the audience in mind, you know, your guests who are going to be using the app. What are they looking for? What are they going to, you know, most need it for? A lot of times wait times is one of those things. If the park has mobile food ordering, uh, to be able to buy season passes, tickets, uh, you know, parking where did you park your car with the gps all those different kind of things so you're always looking at that uh, but you know ryan for you uh how does having a mobile app when you go to a park how does that change your experience i i mean it's changed it significantly um one of the things that's my favorite feature on the mobile app is the the mobile wait times the, the, the ride wait times so i can really kind of plan my immediate future in the day uh by seeing that a particular ride is 20 minutes when it's typically an hour Okay. Um, now, paper maps. You know, I'm a traditionalist. I always love picking up the park maps wherever I would go. Um, but, you know, leaving that world behind, uh, do you still think there's a place for uh, the park maps with mobile apps? Um, in the short term, yes. I think that they're over the next 10 years or so, I think that uh, they'll become less and less common. I think it'll be something you have to ask for. Um, they're not very environmentally friendly. They're expensive to print. You know, it's labor intensive to hand them out. It's labor intensive to create them. Uh, and then, you know, obviously they end up all over the place in the park. So it's a beautification and a litter problem. But I would say over the course of the next 10 years, you'll see a trend down. Um, it might be more of a commemorative thing after that, but I don't see them being baked into the future of any park. I think that the the mobile app is going to be what replaces it over the next. Jenna, you travel around to a lot of different parks. How have you seen parks uh, developing and using their apps? Um, so when I travel to other parks, my needs are very different from parks that I'm familiar with. You know, parks I'm familiar with, obviously, the ride wait times are the most valuable thing. Uh, second would be show times, um, because those are things that are very dynamic, and you can check them, and you can, again, plan your day in the short term. Um, but for parks I'm not familiar with, um, having guided directions around the park uh, is the most valuable thing to me. I mean, it means everything in the world. Because as you know, you visited you know tons and tons of parks. You can see something on the other side of the park and not know how to get to it. It's very rarely linear. So that's why the, the mobile app, you know, that's why I always praise mobile apps that are really good with the, uh, with the mapping um, when I see it, because it really helps me get from point A to point B. And, you know, when you're in a park, time is money. You know, if they're open for eight hours, as some parks are daily, and this is your one visit for the next year or the next three years, you want to do as much as you can and see as much as you can. And the mobile app, app really helps you get around and, and accomplish everything you want to do. Now, having an app at your, you know, everything you need at your fingertips when you visit a park, what about when you're away from the park? Are you ever looking at uh, mobile apps and, you know, trying to, to plan your visit or to buy your tickets or passes? Uh, are you looking to, to be in uh, 
use the app to, to receive information from the park, you know, upcoming, you know, maybe it's ticket offers, promotions, upcoming events, uh, news. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Don. Um, yeah, typically speaking, if it's a park that I visit regularly, I love to be very informed as to what's going on because I want to know every detail. Um, on the contrary, if it's a park that I'm going to visit, uh, I've got a trip planned uh, coming up in which I'm going to some parks on the East Coast. I actually downloaded their apps uh, for, for here's a little convenience lesson for you. I wanted to buy tickets and I wanted to buy meal plans and I wanted to buy all sorts of things like that. Um, but they accepted Apple Pay through the app and that just streamlined the process so much. Um, they didn't have it on the website, so I downloaded the app, but now I have the app so I can experience them and maybe report back to you to see how they did. Okay, so that's good uh, you know, to know that there's so many different ways that uh, you know, parks can use their mobile app. You know, I look at the, the sports industry, particularly the NFL. I mean, that's really their number one touch point uh, with their fans is to communicate everything through that. They're showing the coaches you know, post-game press conferences, the player press conference, the weekly press conferences, if they've got player transactions, anything that they're doing, you know, they're pushing it out through their app first and foremost, more so than they are their social channels. Would you like to see more parts do that? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, to touch on your NFL thing, I don't know if they do this anymore, but uh, Verizon used to sponsor uh, a section of the NFL app where you could see like five different camera angles and switch between them. Um, and I thought that was so cool in augmenting the experience of just watching it on TV. Uh, because, uh, to me, when I watch a football game, it's not always about the play that's unfolding. Like I, I like the whole experience. I like to see how did the coach react when, you know, they caught that long pass or, or something like that. And you can see that sort of thing. And the spirit kind of reigns through with a park, with a park app, you know, cause you can, you can go to a park, you can ride the roller coaster, you can eat the ice cream, but maybe you can be integrated into the history of the park, or maybe you can learn about things that are to come or just fun facts or, or just anything like that with the mobile app, really the, the possibilities are literally endless. And that's what I think is so exciting about this frontier that the industry is really sitting on the edge of. Yeah, I agree with that. Awesome. Um, so what do you think the values are uh, from an industry standpoint of investing in a park app? Well, I think it's the number one touch point. You know, everyone has a mobile device. Not everyone's going to be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They're not all going to visit your website. They might not all subscribe to your email newsletter. So I think it's the number one channel uh, that you can reach, you know, your guests. It's uh, you know, easy place for guests to, you know, renew their passes, buy their tickets, buy their meal plans. Um, so really for me, it's the number one source, I think, uh, for a park that you want to invest in because that is now your primary touch point. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, to call back the, uh, the, the podcast we did last week about the brand, the brand journalism, you know, this is land you own. It's not rented land like it is on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok and so on. So you control the message. You've got the the sales message in there. It's 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 probably a very valuable asset now, let alone ten years from now when it is the touch point. Um, I I don't really have the statistics in front of me, but I imagine that most people between the ages of eighteen and thirty five do most of their browsing on phones rather than on like an Internet Explorer. Well, Internet Explorer died today, RIP. But on like a, an Internet browser. Um, so having an app really kind of has a, a front of mind thing. Plus, uh, you know, one thing that we, we didn't even touch on yet is you can do push notifications. So it, it's, what if mm -hmm. it's a, an emergency situation? Like, Hey, uh, severe, I was at a park the, on Monday and we had severe, we're in the Midwest here. We had severe thunderstorms roll in, you know, to usher in this great heat wave we're having right now. And, um, one thing that I thought would have been really cool, but the infrastructure isn't quite there yet is 
you know, you could have gotten a push through on the park app saying like, hey, you might want to seek shelter or, you know, keep you updated with the weather or something like that. Like that something that dynamic is something that's absolutely doable uh, and it hasn't even been really leveraged yet. So uh, I think that's really cool. Yeah. You know, and and I think, too, there's that opportunity you're talking about those in part notifications like that. Um, say a park has a popular attraction. They just opened a new ride. Everyone's going there right away in the morning. But as guests are coming into the park, maybe they get a notification to, you know, recommend they start the day somewhere else and then hit that ride later in the day when the wait time is not going to be as bad. So there's just so many ways that you can really enhance the guest visit through the mobile. Yeah. App. Yeah. And, and the cool part is I, I know that I know what you're thinking, listener, that I don't want to bother all the people that have our app with a push notification about, you know, the new ice cream or the new show or whatever. But what you may or may not know is that you can actually set a geofence and only the people within the park get the notification. So you can send a sales message to the people you're trying to sell to and leave alone the people that you're not necessarily trying to sell to right now. It's such a win-win. It keeps the customer informed, but it also uh, doesn't bother currently non-customers. Now, what are your thoughts on that? No, no. Well, that segmentation uh, that you're talking about there where you can target specific audiences, you know, the people that are in the park, you know, for certain things with information going on in the park that day that's going to be relevant to them. And then your prospects, you know, to, to plan a visit later on by trying to, you know, talk about your different ticket offers, season passes, uh, upcoming events, you know, other things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many avenues, so many ways that uh, you can take advantage uh, of the mobile app if you're a park uh, to communicate what's happening uh, to your guests, either in the park and venue or outside. I completely agree. Um, you know, we were talking about leveraging the, um, you know, the mobile app uh, to be the most valuable possible tool. Um, mainly from a, a guest standpoint, I actually scribbled down some things that I, that if I was building an app and, you know, we're limited only by the technology of today, uh, but not by necessarily budget. Um, here are some of the things that that I would, that I would put on it. Um, one thing that I think is a no-brainer that nobody's approached yet is having a social media integration. So basically, you load up the, um, you know, you load up the Disney World app, the World's a Fun app, whatever, and you have the latest tweets or the latest Facebook posts or whatever right there. You know, so that would draw people into following the social channels, and it would keep the client or the customer informed. Um, you mentioned uh, mobile food ordering uh, very briefly. Um, I think that's brilliant. Uh, food lines are way too long at every single park. Um, and I think we're so spoiled by uh, having the ability to do that. Um, I eat a lot of Chipotle, as you can tell. Uh, and part of my purchasing decision for buying Chipotle is that it's easy to order through a mobile app. Choose what you want. Pay with Apple Pay so you don't have to fill out any information. Walk in there and grab it. That sort of experience, I think, would be beyond fantastic. Um Another thing that, uh, and I wouldn't go as far as Disney does with this, but a ride reservation system uh, to keep the line shorter. Um, from a guest standpoint, obviously the the rides, um, you know, if you wait for two hours, that's not fun. That's not a positive experience. Well, at the same time, if you're waiting for two hours, you're not eating and you're not buying merchandise or, or doing other experiences that might drive up per capita spending. Um, so I would have something along those lines. Obviously, the the criticism of the Disney World one is that you, you plan your day too much. Personally, I'd love that. Uh, just knowing that I'm going to accomplish everything I want to accomplish. Um, but I, I would probably sit down with a team and as well as a focus group and figure out what's the, like, if, if you reserve this and do you, you want to be able to go to this particular ride for the next hour, or do you want to be able to ride exactly at 630? 
you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, uh, I would say that a lot of parks could probably benefit from a loyalty program, you know, for visits and purchases and, you know, all sorts of things like that. Uh, every other retailer out there uh, does that sort of thing. Um, uh, interaction with shows or park elements. Um, so one of those things that, that could be cool and uh, a mutual friend of ours, who I'll tell you off camera that, uh, you know, uh, suggested this one that you, you could uh, interact with the park and it could tell you about park history for where you're standing. This is where this ride used to, be, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, purchase payment pickup for merchandise. Um, so the problem that overcomes for me um, one of the parks I go to a lot is uh, is really having a great merchandise year, and I've bought so much stuff from them. But I always have a turnoff of, well, it's six, I'm leaving at ten. I don't really want to buy this now and carry it around. So being able to uh, to track your, you know, just this is what I want to buy, and I'll come pick it up later, kind of thing. That's something that I would really want, and I think that it would encourage spending in the park. So it's a good customer experience, and it's a good. Um, you know, it, it benefits the park as well. Um, here's one that's, that I can't believe nobody's really done, to my knowledge. Um, an interactive park map with directions. If I'm at Cinderella Castle and I want to know how to get to the Hall of Presidents, I can't tell on a two-dimensional map how to get there. It doesn't work that way for most people. I'm used to a GPS. I want the app to do that. I want the app to turn left here, turn right there. Maybe even using like, like an AR thing. You know, where it, like you hold up the camera and it tells you which direction to turn. No one's really explored that yet, but I think that could be really successful and a really positive experience. Um, and then finally, one that, uh, that I really want, and this is so simple, is um, showtimes and events with reminders. So sometimes when I get to a park, I look at the showtime. Okay, I want to see the four o'clock whatever show, but I forget about it. So what I'd like to do is have it so I'd be like, I intend to do this. And then it pops something up at 345 saying like, hey, just to let you know the show's coming up. I think that would be a huge win for, for the guest experience and it would drive attendance to the, to the shows, you know, if that's a goal. Um, Don, I know I covered a lot of ground and you're probably exhausted now, but is there anything else you can add that's been like on your bucket list of stuff that you wish that Parks would add to Park Apps? Well, you know, these are things that we've talked about over the years, uh, you know, off your list. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all doable, you know, in, in some some fashion uh, to be able to do. Uh, you can't have everything, you know, all the time. But, uh, you know, there's definitely good points. And you talk about improving the guest experience. A lot of those things you called out would exactly do that, you know, such as those show times or being reminded about that show. Yeah, and well, what's funny is you can always draw it back to anything that benefits the guest benefits the park. Um, for shows, for example, um, a lot of people in the industry uh, that are more of the number crunchers see shows as an added value rather than like a, an asset to the park. But I disagree. I think that if you can get somebody to sit down in air conditioning for a half hour around five or six o'clock and that recharges the batteries and gets them to stay till 10, uh, that, that's another meal. That's, that's a t-shirt purchase. That's anything. You know, I, I, I'd be willing to risk that, you know, I know that shows and live entertainment are expensive, but I, I really think that there's a value there. So long as you offer a quality product that people really want to see. Yeah, I agree with you there on that. Now, Ryan, um, let's go back to the guest interaction, uh, the guest engagement while you're in the park or even outside the park. Uh, how much do you think is the right number? Uh, maybe what's too much? Uh, you know, what, as a 
you know, guests come to the parks, how often do you want that park uh, that you have a pass or a ticket to? How often do you want to hear from them? Are you saying outside of the park or inside the park? Both. Okay. When you're both in the park, how often do you want to, you know, have these messages during the day? Or if you're outside the park, you know, you're not going to be there for another couple of weeks. How often do you want to hear okay, from that's a That's a very good question. Me, uniquely, um, I, I wouldn't mind it every day. Uh, I would say for the average person, though, um, if you're going to push something, it better be important uh, outside of the park, that is. So if it's, oh, season passes are going up, or no, absolutely not. But if it's a, this is a limited time event, or we got this concert coming up, or something just really, really cool that everybody should see, then you can use it. Inside the park, fair game. They're inside the park. They're doing park things. They want to hear from the park app. So if you want to tell them that, hey, we're having a buffet tonight from 5 to 10, it's you know 30 bucks. tell them that. You want to say like, hey, we got this show going on. We don't think you know about it, but you should come see it. Do it. You know, by all means, I don't think it would bother anybody while they're in the park. Outside of the park, I would say maximum once a month, and that would be an absolute max. Okay, well, very good information there, Ryan. Uh, you know, you always have good insights as a, as a guest. You've gone to many, many parks. You've downloaded everybody's apps, and you're always trying to, you know, tell me what you like, what you don't like. And, you know, I really think, that, I mean, that's the future of communicating with your guests. It's going to be, you know, your mobile app, and then you're still going to have email, but those are the two best touch points, and the app being number one. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, Don, I've got a kind of a, um, a think experiment for you. I, I'm dropping this on you right now, and we didn't discuss this off camera, so... But I wanted to hold no. this back. Okay, so I want you to think of the top three problems and by problems i mean first world amusement park problems that a guest would have and let's let's discuss what the app can do to alleviate those problems fix it or at least make it better so what do you what well, i think what do you think the number one yeah, problem I guess? oh yeah yeah your time is valuable valuable when you're in a, a, an amusement or theme park and you want to make the most of your day so i think the app with mobile food ordering can certainly help there uh, I think right wait times, you want to know what's, you know, the wait time for any attraction. Uh, you want to know if rides are down, you know, so you're not going to go navigate all the way across the park only to find that the ride's not open. So I think those are, you know, three things in terms of, um, you know, helping preserve that time that you have in a park. It's a short window, 12 hours for the most part, for most parks. Um, and, and I think those are the things that uh, would, would help make the guest experience better if they know what the wait times are, they know what attractions may be down for whatever reason, and they're able to to order food and not have to wait in the food lines. Yeah, yeah. What's funny is that, um, you know, you mentioned the time's valuable, but it seems like uh, almost every problem can be dialed up to the, the guest is not informed about this or that. You know, the guest is waiting for two hours for power of terror when you know slinky dog dash is five minutes I, I wish i had known that you know that that's what comes to mind for me you know any way you can push information to the guest is going to alleviate it i guess it'd be difficult to do a top three because i think you nailed the top two really really well you know the the guest is uh lacking information and the guest time is valuable and their time is not being used in a manner in which you know it can uh to the best of its resources but yeah i mean i think you Anytime that a park is having a problem uh, and it's and we're kind of talking about bigger players here that can kind of turn on a dime a little bit. But I would honestly recommend just as somebody who's familiar with this stuff, if you're having repeated guest services issues with one particular thing, try, try oh, to yeah. think about what the app can do to fix it. You know, think if you can keep people informed or you can help people make better decisions. 
I, I just think that there's so much value into that little piece of glass that's in everybody's pocket that's connected to satellites in outer space, you know? So, you know, leverage that, utilize it, you know? And if you're still one of those parks on one of the, the old apps that's like uh, so flat, invest in it. You know, it's well, you've got to do this to move forward. You can sell tickets. You can sell tickets through that. You can sell fast pass through it. You can sell meal plans through it. There's You'll make your money back on it, you know? Yeah, I think... You know, Ryan, really with a mobile app, uh, when you're in a park, it really is a great tool uh, to make the most of your day, no matter where you are. Yeah, I'm, I completely agree. Um, then, you know, and, and then you, you mentioned like paper maps and stuff. Um, paper maps are relics. Um, I'm surprised to see them come back after COVID. I thought after COVID, there wouldn't be park maps anymore because they were like, hey, we don't really need to do this, which you don't, you know. Um I think that it would be nice to have them because I think people would appreciate them as a commemorative piece. But do you need to print a hundred thousand of them? No, you need about five thousand of them, really. You know, make it so people ask for them to get them. Otherwise, download the app. You know, the only downside to that would be, you know, um, when you when you have a very positive experience, you value the relics involved with it. So that T-shirt that you bought at, at Disney or Worlds of Fun or wherever, or um, and the park map too. The park map you use is, is something that a lot of people collect. You're going to lose that, you know. But unfortunately, as times change, that's something we have to adapt to. You know, you can download the 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 app for you know the new Six Flags Dubai park. It doesn't mean you've been there. You're not going to have an emotional connection to it. To that, I say I'm sorry, but time goes on. There's a lot of other things in history that have been like that that have gone to the wayside that have been replaced by more digital means. Yeah, you're not seeing the paper tickets as much anymore. You're not seeing, you know, uh, different brochures being printed anymore because everyone now has a website. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. It's just time, I think, that, uh, you know, you're not going to see them around too much longer. I completely agree. So, basically, let's summarize here. So, what we've kind of uh, concluded between my experience uh, as a guest and your experience in the industry is that uh, the paper maps are on their way out. Paper maps are not environmentally friendly. They're an ecological disaster for the parks. They're expensive to print. They're expensive to hand out. And the app is dynamic. And it's a it's an investment that um, is continued because you don't need to build a new app every every year. You know, you can make it and you can skin it and stuff. Uh, really, there there's a million people out there that develop this sort of stuff. So even if you're like a, a, a little park, an independent family park, look into it. See what you can do. You know, get some college kid to develop one for you. You know, it doesn't have to be a $100,000 affair. Yeah, and for me, uh, you know, being on that storytelling, you know, side of it as a, as a you know, PR person, a, a digital marketer, is that, you know, when somebody downloads your app, you want them to keep it. You don't want to have something where they're, you know, uninstalling it after they've left the park. So I, to me, you know, make it valuable, you know, both out of venue and in venue for the person that downloads it. I completely agree. You know, one of the ways that you can do that is when you store tickets and season passes on it. Um, I, I know that uh, there's there's a park down south that I'm a, a season pass holder to, uh, but it's not a park. It's only a park I go to a few times a year, but it's far more convenient for me to keep my season pass built into their app than it is to actually pull it out and lose it in the park somewhere. So I keep that app. You know, I don't have to re-download it every time. So if they need to reach me, or if I need some top of mind and I'm scrolling through my apps and I see it there, then there it is. You know, I, I completely agree with you on that. So are you giving a thumbs up to the app, Don? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so audio listeners, thumbs up from both of us. The app, so definitely, uh, if your favorite park supported by downloading their app, and, and uh, let's see what the industry can do. I'm really excited about this, uh, in particular, over the next five years. All right, well, let's move on to some news around the industry. Ryan. Oh, I'm excited about this one. Sometimes reading the news is like drinking out of a fire hose, isn't it, Don? It is. Okay. Do you want to? Do you want to go first? No, you go ahead. Okay. So. All right. So uh, really, really exciting news coming out of uh, SeaWorld Orlando. Uh, This is from Inside the Magic. Uh, It seems like that there's a possible new roller coaster coming there. Uh, This project will open in 2023 uh, and be a Bulgier Mabillard, B&M, for people who don't speak Swiss like I don't, uh, like Kraken and Manta and Mako. Uh, Since SeaWorld was so secretive about this new project, many rumors surrounded the coaster, like its name and mechanics commenting on whether it would be standing or a sit-down coaster. Uh, there's a video that shows that it will be a standing coaster, uh, which makes sense considering the coaster will be themed to a surfing experience. This is the rumored surf coaster that uh, I guess B&M copyrighted the name surf coaster in the United States. Uh, the video states that high surf, uh, this video they're referring to, by the way, is a video teaser that was released by uh, by SeaWorld Orlando last week. Uh, high surf will be at SeaWorld Orlando's seventh coaster, and it will be the first of its kind. At the moment, it's unclear whether uh, first of its kind refers to, as it could imply that it was the first launch standing coaster or just be referring to B&M's new model of coasters. So, interesting story. Not so much the coaster. The coaster is interesting, but SeaWorld 10 years ago was a marine park. SeaWorld is trying to readjust themselves as a thrill park. How do you think they're doing with that, Don? You know, I think you know, from my experience going to the park, they've done a nice job with it. Um, you know, their attractions that they put out are well-themed. Uh, this looks, you know, I thought they did a really nice job with the teaser, you know, video. Got a lot of conversation going with that. Um, you know, the the stand-up, you know, version of this, I mean, it makes sense being a surf-type uh, theme to it. So, uh, you know, excited to see what this ends up being. Yeah, I am too. I, I really do love uh, SeaWorld Orlando. Um, I haven't been to the other SeaWorld properties, but I really want to make it out there. Um, uh, the, well, you mentioned everything's well-themed, and, and it really is. Um, even their, uh, their B&M Hypercoaster uh, makeup. Have you been on that yet? I have. Yeah, isn't it really neat how when it when it goes out of the station, how it has Mako sharks swimming above you? And it makes... Even when the train goes by when you're on the midway, it does like a sound effect. I think that's so cool. And I think that... Uh, SeaWorld is terribly underrated for what they've accomplished over the past 10 years or so. And God, I hope this coaster goes well for them because what a great park. Really, really highly. Like I said, the teaser video, you know, it looked it looked good and I look forward to, to hearing more about yeah, it. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you know, and when it comes down to teasers, uh, you know, some parks do stuff in park and, and they chose to do a video. Um, do you think that they did a video because their reach is more regional to nationwide than it is local? I don't think there's any, you know, set way that you have to do something. You know, everybody's got their own ideas on what to do. And, you know, because they are, like you said, they're not, uh, you know, going to attract, you know, as many locals. It's going to be more of that, you know, tourists coming there. You know, you have a broader reach through social than, you know, if you tried to put some things around your park, the conversation is going to start off a little stronger that way. In other parks, you know, if you're more of a... Um, you know, part is drawing from, you know, 60, 70 miles away, you know, for the higher percentage of your guests. Yeah, you probably want to do some more things in park to get that conversation going. But, uh, you know, everybody's going to have a different approach to what they want to do. And, uh, you know, the tools are out there. 
uh, to, to be able to do it in a variety of different ways now through social media, your app, your website, uh, you know, earn media, whatever you want to do in park. Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing that came to mind is, you know, in the day and age of social media, had they done something in park, it probably would have been as impactful as a video. So this was probably uh, an absolute decision by the fine people at um, <laughs> at SeaWorld. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, in 1985, if you ran a park and you put a teaser in the park, it would probably go as far as the park. Maybe maybe news if you're good, but it's, it's going to go as far as the park. Um, so that would be distinctly or like purposely narrowing it almost like as in you only want people coming to the park to know about it for, for one reason or another. Um, but releasing a video to the media would be the tantamount thing with this. Uh, but in today's world, they're, they're really kind of equivalent to each other. Either you can release a video or I guarantee you that if they put something in the park of a surfer dude or whatever, that would have made every station to you know, so it would have been just as good. But yeah, yes, hats off to them. Uh, I'm really excited for the announcement. I really don't have any idea when it's going to be. I really haven't heard any speculation. I would guess it would probably be towards the end of the summer. Um, you know, when they're when they're coming out of the summer, yeah. Because uh, if they open it in 2023, they would probably open it in March or so, going into spring break. I would guess. Yeah, and when you're a year-round park, you know, you can drag it out a little bit longer you know, with your teaser campaigns and, and be a little bit, uh, you know, later in terms of revealing everything about it and setting dates for when it's going to open. Uh, when you're more of a seasonal park, you know, you have to be a little bit more uh, timely with what you're doing with that. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just trying to work backward from the fact that they made the first teaser now. Um, I know that, you know, obviously with Iron Gwazi and with Icebreaker, uh, the timelines were way out of whack because of COVID. Um, but I would presume that most rides would probably open in time for spring break to attempt to lure that audience. Um, so assuming they're going to open it by then, which is, I mean, they're doing construction, so it's entirely possible. I would say, I mean, maybe they would even make an announcement before December, like maybe November so they can get uh, annual pass sales as part of a holiday put. I don't know. I guess we'll have to see and we'll have to circle back to this once the announcement's made, but how exciting for, for SeaWorld Orlando. Great park. I can't wait. When we go to IAPA, we'll have to go to SeaWorld. I was just talking about that earlier. So, um, so yeah. So, um, speaking of travel, so, Don, gas prices are $5 a gallon here. How are they up near you? Uh, it's about five ten right now. Oh, my gosh. How do you think this is affecting the parks? You know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, almost every couple of years when there's a spike in the gas prices, you know, it's always one of the questions that uh, everyone's wondering about. But what you find, though, is, you know, people still, you know, want to be outdoors. They, they want to have fun with their family and friends and, uh, you know, amusement parks, theme parks. That makes, uh, you know, the perfect thing to do if they're within, you know, a certain driving range, you know, where you don't have to go cross country to to go do that. Um you know, so I think that uh, it's always been, you know, you hear the word staycation. Uh, so a lot of times where somebody may have had that, uh, you know, if you're living in the Midwest and you were going to go to Florida and you were maybe thinking of driving there or even with the, you know, the, the cost of flights nowadays, you're going to be more inclined to stay closer to home. Uh, so, I mean, it, does it have an impact? You know, I think in some ways it can actually it can actually benefit, uh, you know, parks because you're going to have more of those uh, staycationers that are going to be looking for things to, to do nearby. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. I mean, for somebody that's going to be flying here in a couple of days, 
Um, the flights were about double what I expected them to be. I, I just mentally didn't take the fuel costs into account. Um, I know that uh, CEO of one of the major chains uh, mentioned that they thought that gas prices were actually beneficial to regional parks for the reasons you stated that, um, you know, a, a trip to Disney that's a thousand miles away is just way more costly than it would have been a year ago, two years ago, you know, so let's go a hundred miles to the theme park, you know, I mean, it could hurt. There are some people that can't, you know, who make seven trips a year from, you know, two states away that are only going to make three because it's just really expensive, but hopefully that's offset by the people that come in, but it seems like, um, you know, there's people, there's an inelastic demand that's really kind of smacked back um, and people are ready to party right now post COVID. So it seems like every single theme park is just off the chain. So hopefully they'll push through it. Hopefully um, whatever needs to be done gets done about these gas prices. And then, um, you know, we're all back at full force, but it seems like uh, you know, the seasonal parks are really weathering it pretty well as of late. Okay, well, Ryan, Walt Disney World uh, recently released a behind-the-scenes video of the making of Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, your thoughts, if you had a chance to see that video. Do you like Parks uh, showing you those behind-the-scene looks? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I, I love behind-the-scene looks um, to an extent. Uh, this particular video was really cool because it actually had the actors in it. Um, and uh, I thought that was really neat about them talking about bringing their characters back to life uh, from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Uh, you know, you go back to the brand journalism storytelling and so on, and it really fits into that criteria very well and it really hypes the uh, excitement for it. Um, one thing that I don't like, and uh, I've told you about this before too, is I hate seeing behind the curtain unless I really want to. So, you know, tease don't spoil kind of thing. This obviously is not crossing that line whatsoever, but you asked, so you're going to get an answer. You know, but uh, yeah, they did a great job of telling their story about what brought the ride to life and the, you know, the actor's involvement and so on. Um, what did you think about it? You know, I love when parks do things like that uh, to show you, you know, the, what was behind it, the making of, you know, whatever the attraction may have been. Uh, it gives you a different look than the surface when you're at a park. You know, you get to ride it. Uh, but what went into it? I've always been intrigued about that. So when parks do these kind of videos or stories on their blogs, you know, I'm all in. I'm going to read it. I'm going to watch it. Oh, I, I completely agree, especially when Disney puts out content. Uh, often it's, you know, at the top of the pile as far as quality is concerned. Um, so you're not going to be disappointed and they're not going to waste. Your so, you know, so that's that. So, um, Don, it's mid-June, so it's time to start talking about Halloween. So Disneyland uh, California, that is, of course, and Disney's California Adventure have both announced their Halloween plans already. Uh, so this is from WDW News Today. Disneyland Resort has announced that all of their 2022 Halloween offerings for both theme parks, uh, Oogie Boogie Bash, will be returning this year beginning September 6th. Throughout Disneyland Park, guests may encounter Disney villains or other characters in brand new Halloween looks. Seasonal decor, including pumpkin displays and iconic giant, giant Mickey pumpkin. Uh, will transform Main Street USA. So, Don, is it too early? You know, when you look at, uh, you know, Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Universal Orlando, uh, you know, those parks there, they're destinations. People have to plan. They have to, uh, you know, book hotels, book flights, uh, plan vacation times to go down there. So you do need to get in front of it a little earlier. Now makes around that time because people plan like three months out a lot of times uh, when they're going to go travel somewhere. Um, when you're more of a, a regional park, uh, you're drawing a little bit more, uh, you know, locally, 
uh, you can be a little bit later with it. You want to be maybe, you know, six weeks out uh, with it. You can do it that way. But, uh, you know, when you are those destination places, those places that are open year round and uh, it's a vacation you know, place for a lot of people, you have to get that information out there as early as possible because people are wanting to plan. Yeah, Don, from uh, from a seasonal standpoint, do you think that there's a lot of risk when it comes to uh, bleed through from one event to another? For example, if you uh, announce your Halloween event and then close up, you announce like the, the ride for the next year, which would be kind of in that same time frame. Um, do you think that the, the two might offset each other and kind of cloud the messaging? Like how, how do you how do you defeat that? Not necessarily. I think they're two different things. You know, they're, they're going to appeal to different audiences as well a lot of times, too, depending on what that attraction you may be opening is uh, for the next year. So, you know, I don't think so. I think there's, uh, you know, you don't want to do it, obviously, on the same day. But I think you could do it within the same week, you know, the same two-week period. Okay, so it's not really that relevant at all. You could do it within the same week. So you announce you know, a roller coaster flat ride and then, like, hey, this is what's going on for our scary event or whatever you can pull that off and and not have a clouded message no because i think what happens is when you announce something or you know there's just different news that's out there you know a few days later people have moved on from it so they're ready for the next piece of information from you yeah i mean uh, i mean you mentioned in the last podcast that sometimes you know uh newsrooms get fatigued with stories from a park do you think that there's any risk with that if it's the same type of a thing, yes. You know, if you're talking about the same uh, new attraction over and over again, yes, they would. But when it's different type of news, you know, here's our Halloween event. Here's one, you know, here's our new attraction. for Those are two totally different things, both newsworthy. They'd still cover those things. Okay. Uh, but so if they're, if they're too similar, as in you announce, you know, the offerings of your Halloween event, and then you drop a presser a few days later about like a show that's going to be there that's particularly special, that might fall through the cracks. Yeah, when there's different components that fall within the same thing, yeah, then it becomes a time where they're going to be fatigued by you. Um, so you have to have different type of news for them, something that's totally different, uh, a fresh new story, you know, which that would be between your Halloween event and a new attraction. So how do, um, I mean, for from a seasonal park standpoint, how do season pass sales factor into this do you do you time when season passes go on sale or when you announce that or uh, does that factor into announcements for the next year at all i think it depends on where you are in the construction of your new project uh, sometimes uh, the, the cat's going to be out of the bag a little earlier because uh, they can see the progress that's being made with it so it depends i mean you, you ideally you like to kind of do it all together i would think uh, but at the same time you know, you might be a few weeks ahead on announcing or you might be a few weeks behind on announcing, depending on when your passes would go on sale. Right. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, most parks nowadays seem to be able to time it up where it's like, you know, we're announcing this great new thing for next year and season passes are on sale for next year. So good for them, you know. To, to... Well, I think a lot of that, too, is the mindset. I mean, you're thinking about the next year, the moment you hear about something that's going to be new, you want to ride it, you're thinking about you know, the future. So, you know, it's the perfect time to, you know, to also add in that passes for the next year on sale at that time. Yeah, yeah I completely agree with that uh, because it's almost like um, selling somebody a record player and not letting them know you also sell records. You know, I don't, I don't know where I got that reference from, but uh, it, it's, you know, I'm going to give you this great piece of hardware or this great announcement, this great event or whatever, 
but I'm not going to push you, nudge you in the direction of being able to access it. I think that that's kind of a disservice. People know where to go generally, but at the same time, like it's almost, it's a disservice to the park to not have that message. But you're right. I mean, if you have to make an announcement in July, I mean, you're not ready for passes for the next year. No, you know, and and the construction is going to you know dictate that for you. We've seen uh, you know parks around the country that they have to announce in June. You know what they're doing the following year, just because the footers and the vertical construct everything has started. Everybody knows what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to do it while it's newsworthy and it's not already been out there on a thousand different channels. Exactly what you're doing. Uh, so it's a lot harder today than it would have been, you know, years ago where uh, nobody knew until the park was ready to announce it because there wasn't, you know, everybody walking around the park with a mobile device. They weren't digging into all this information. Uh, so you saw then, you know, it was January, February, even March before sometimes they would announce what's new uh, for that that upcoming season. Now it's usually, you know, you see it toward the end of the summer, early fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, Yeah, I mean, that would be the appropriate time to do it. I. I completely agree with you. Uh, the The one downside, because uh, I mentioned that usually they can time it up with season pass sales, but it seems like if you're doing um, an RMC, Rocky Mountain Construction Conversion, Construction Conversion, not Construction, uh, that they usually start pretty early. But then again, if you are if you close a wooden coaster in today's world and you don't say you're going to tear it down, guess what you're going to do? You know. But at the same time, I remember when, um, when Gwazi got the RMC treatment and steel, uh, steel vengeance. Well, Main street got the, got it. You know, there was track being laid before they made an announcement, but you didn't know much beyond that. So I, it almost made it boil, you know, especially with mean street, you know, what's this going to do with such a big structure, you know? So I don't think it took anything away from it. Do you? No, not at all. I, I think that was, uh, both of those were, uh, two of the more exciting announcements because, he knew what was going on, but he didn't know enough. The he didn't know enough. Let's put it that way. You know, uh, you didn't know enough to know if this is going to shatter the earth or not. And it seems like both of them did shatter the earth. So, so good for them. <laughs> okay. So speaking of uh, new attractions, Don, um, what I have in front of me is USA Today's top new theme park attractions. Um, and I'm going to start from number ten, and then let's discuss where we would put the list. You know, if we would rearrange it. Uh, so number 10 was Lego Factory Adventure at Legoland, New York. Uh, Jurassic Park Velocicoaster at Universal's Island Adventure. Wonder Woman Flight of Courage at Six Flags Magic Mountain. Iron Gwazi at Busch Gardens, Tampa. Jersey Devil at Six Flags Great Adventure. Tidal Surge at SeaWorld San Antonio. Pantheon at Busch Gardens, Williamsburg. Emperor at SeaWorld San Diego. Daddy's Pig Roller Coaster at Peppa Pig's Theme Park. Did you name that one, Don? It just sounds like you. And then, <laughs> it does. Sound and like and it the number like one is Icebreaker at SeaWorld Orlando. So more love for SeaWorld Orlando today. What are your thoughts on this list, Don? It seems like that pretty much covered all the new stuff that came out in the last two years. Um, is there anything that you think is ranked a little low on there? Well, I think, you know, for me, um, it would have been, you know, Gwazi, I would have thought, Iron Gwazi would have finished a little bit higher on the list. Uh, you know, maybe Pantheon would have been up there to number three, maybe up one spot. Uh, the biggest surprise for me uh, was Jurassic Velocicoaster being where it is at number nine. That would have been, you know, number one or two, you know, going into this poll that I would have thought that's probably where it's going to finish up just because, you know, the hype was out there everywhere about that. Uh, you know, you were seeing uh, 
you know, nationwide commercials for it. Uh, you know, people were going down there to experience it. You're talking to your friends, the coaster community about it. So you would think that finished a little higher than number nine. But, uh, you know, these polls are always interesting. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think everything on here is fantastic. I'm curious about the, the Legoland New York. Um, I remember following the construction, but then when COVID hit and stuff, I kind of just uh, um, lost track of it. So I'm going to have to look into what that Lego factory adventure is. I went to the Lego land that used to be Cypress Gardens down in, uh, I think it's Winter, ha Winter Haven or Winter Garden, Florida. I can't remember which one it is. Um, and that was really cool. Like uh, it was a very basic, simple theme park. And then they put their own twist on it. And it was so neat. Um, yeah, I think sometimes with these polls too, uh, when they come out, that there's a lot of times that, uh, you know, the enthusiast community who, you know, votes a lot on these things, they haven't had time to travel around and, and do them all yet. Uh, so sometimes you'll see the parks that have been open year round. They have the advantage over a seasonal park in these kind of polls. Um, but, you know, here again, you see one that's opened all the time, you know, year round with uh, number nine. You know, one thing that um, I was impressed by was uh, Icebreaker at SeaWorld Orlando is uh, it's one of those premier ride Skyrocket coasters, I believe. Um, that one's number one uh, for a coaster that doesn't have a unique layout. They really they sh they shook a lot of cages, didn't they? They did a really good job. What do you think? They did. They did a great job, and you know it was one of the rides that uh, opened earlier. You know than than the others here, and you. Know, they had different events, coaster enthusiasts down there. They had different media events. The, the, you know, the word got out about it. And that's a big part of these polls when you're, you're doing the top new rides. And here we are, June, what, 15th, 16th range, middle of June. And, uh, you know, they're, they're coming out with what's the best new ride. People haven't had a chance to go on a ride all these yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's what kind of uh, disparages. I mean, not that this USA Today, the top 10 polls are more for fun than anything. And they, they are great exposure for these parks. But, um I, I doubt that there are more than a hundred people that have ridden all of these rides yet. You know, right? Um, so let me ask you this: so you've got experience, you know, campaigning for USA Today's top ten, and uh, it's kind of like the baseball or, or the MLB All Star Game, where it's you know vote early, vote often, that kind of thing. What advice would you give a park that's trying to win one of these polls? Like, how do you how do you pull up ahead? Well, you just have to make sure that uh, there's an awareness for it, you know, so you have to use your different, uh, your, you know, your own and your shared channels uh, to communicate that information. You know, is it in your newsletters? Are you putting it out there on social media, mobile apps? Uh, just making an awareness for it. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I've seen that uh, done very well. And sometimes, you know, parks will get votes because they deserve it blatantly. You know, like um, uh, best theme park. Uh, I, that's the list I was originally looking for, and I came across this, which I would have thought was a little bit more interesting. And um, but best theme park was Dollywood. You know, they got voted best theme park by Reader's Digest, uh, and that's beating out like Disney and stuff. So it's you, you kind of wonder what people do to measure the statistics of, you know, what's important for a best theme park, and obviously whatever that is, you know, Dollywood hits these metrics. You know. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got a different idea what they're looking for when these polls come out. Uh, sometimes, you know, you talked about what a park can do. Sometimes your your guests are your best ambassadors for these things. You know, they're the ones talking about it. They're going on to the fan sites. They're going on to social media, you know, talking about it and saying, I just voted for this park. You know, ride's great. Help me out. You know, those kind of things. So, you know, I think that's a big part of it, too, is just having 
you know, your audience, your guests uh, that know your park, you know, they can be your best ambassadors for these things. Yeah. And uh, what I think is really cool about it, which really destroys the integrity of the poll is you can send a link that automatically votes for whoever you want it to vote for. So I always thought that would, that kind of tickled me a little bit. I mean, again, it's, there's no cash prize for this. It's all for fun and for exposure. So I always thought it was kind of like kind of a missed opportunity where going back to the mobile app, you couldn't push out a link saying like, here, click this for you know, make us the best amusement park or whatever, or having fun. You can vote for it, you know, that sort of thing. I don't think that many people leverage that in a, in a manner that benefits them and kind of makes it fun for the park too. You know, or, well, yeah, it leverages it for the park and it's kind of fun for them to be part of it. If, uh, especially if the park wins, you know, top five or so. So I think that's, I think that's really cool. I, I like what they're doing with these top tens. Um, I, I think that some people hit them a little too hard as far as, you know, posting over and over again about, you know, vote for us for the top 10 or whatever, but you know, like you're going to have that no matter what, but uh Anyway, uh, get it. And if you're with a park, you, I mean, you absolutely want to win these things. I mean, it's, you know, even though, like you said, it comes down to like, you know, voting for the all-star game in baseball and that, uh, you know, there still is a lot of pride in, in, you know, winning these awards or where you rank. And, uh, you know, it, it really is something that, uh, you know, is a tribute to, to the associates that are working at the park because for guests to like your park and for, them to feel good enough to vote for you they had to have a great experience there yeah I, I, you know I, and that starts with everyone out in the park you know running the rides running the food and beverage locations uh you know performing in the show i mean all that factors into all this so you know you can't just win it because you're you know pushing it out on all these sh social channels you know the park experience has to be a good one or no one's going to vote for you no matter what you do on social media yeah it's very rare that i see these lists and i you know, think to myself like that park does not deserve it. You know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, from a ride standpoint alone, um, it's going to be hard to beat Jurassic, uh, the Velocicoaster or uh, Iron Gwazi. I think those are two of the biggest investments and stuff, but Icebreaker won. And I think that people love SeaWorld, so people love Icebreaker. Um, but when it comes to this, you know, obviously, you know, Reader's Digest is a big deal. Um, you can send the links out to vote. Uh, you know, we kind of discussed that you want to keep it in front of people and you, you have to earn it, especially. Um, how does this differ from, you know, campaigning for golden ticket awards? Well, I think it's a different audience voting for it. Uh, you know, it's, it's open to anyone to vote for these, you know, USA Today 10 best polls where the golden ticket award, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, on a list. Uh, to be able to to have a ballot to vote, you know, whether you're a subscriber to the magazine or supplier, you know, whatever it may be with that, it's more of a, um, you know, it's not a, a wide open derby for everybody in, in the country to vote for you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I know it's uh, attractions magazine uh, subscribers as well as select members of the media, as well as industry people. So um, Don, I just thought of a show idea. We should have a golden ticket extravaganza and pick apart the golden tickets this August and, you know, well, well, I tell you what, let's do this. The show before the golden tickets, let's predict all the categories and see, you know, if we were right, wrong, where they fell in the, the rankings, so on. That's completely on a tangent. <laughs> but anyway. All right. Well, Ryan, uh, Universal Orlando Resort, they've announced the Great Movie Escape. It's the park's first ever escape room. 
Uh, you're familiar with skate rooms. What do you think? Um, I think this is so exciting. Uh, according to coldyear.com, Universal Orlando Resort has just announced a first ever escape room experience. Universal's great movie escape featuring two new immersive escape rooms based on their epic films, Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. Uh, fans will get to try their luck at these multi-century puzzle rooms. I am the biggest Back to the Future fan, and I could not be more excited. Next time I'm down in Orlando, I'm so doing it. You ever done an escape room, Don? I have not. I thought about doing one before, but uh, you know, something else came up. I think there was something on ESPN or something I wanted to watch, so I didn't do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're you know they're interesting, and the people that have experienced those, they seem to, to have good things to say about it. They love the experience. Yeah, I mean, as somebody that's uh, managed an escape room, designed escape rooms, I've been contracted to to build escape room. Uh, I, I've done a lot of that, and you know, a previous life, and um, you know. Originally, the mentality was that you'd never sacrifice the integrity of the game for the show. So basically, it didn't matter what happened in the room. It was all about solving the puzzles and so on. I never felt that way. I always felt like you were part of an hour-long experience. Uh, and it feels like the industry is kind of trending in that direction. Um, a, a great example of that, uh, in a lot of tourist areas, and somehow here in Cincinnati, there's a company called The Escape Game. They are the Walt Disney World of escape rooms. It's incredible. There's fog and there's water and there's uh, projections. And, and one, there was a BB gun that you had to shoot. Um, if anybody can really create an experience that's really incredible, it's universal. Um, so I'm beyond excited for this. I'll be the first in line on the day that I get there to to do the Back to the Future one. And, and probably the, I mean, I like Jurassic Park too, but Back to the Future one of my favorite movies so i would love to do that um I, I i i'm just out of my skin excited about how cool this is going to be you want to play with me don definitely i think it's going to be a lot of fun awesome well make sure you put that on your calendar um i believe that runs through the end of the year but uh you'll have to check universal orlando's website because i don't have all right so don big day june 16th june 16th is the anniversary of america's first roller coaster LaMarcus Thomas's Switchback Railway at Coney Island, New York, which was a gravity-powered out-and-back ride that took its inspiration from a mining railway. You remember riding it, Don? <laughs> you know, uh, I imagine, in my dreams, I imagined uh, this ride. You know, I, you really think about that, and you're thinking, okay, 1884, and, uh, you know, topping out at a, at a top speed of six miles per hour, you know, how thrilling that would have been for that generation. Uh, you know, to what you see today where, you know, coasters are going 90 plus. Uh, so I think about that a lot, uh, you know, just how it's really evolved since then. But back to that era, you know, how exciting and fun that would have been. Yeah, I mean, um, is this, I know there's a National Roller Coaster Day, which is coming up in a couple months, but is this, uh, how is this celebrated, like, within the industry? Well, the American Coaster Enthusiast, you know, great organization, if you're not familiar with them. Um, they've got uh, events planned at several parks around the country uh, on June 16th, uh, 2 o'clock. They're all going to fill trains on uh, select coasters at these different parks, and I'll take a ride at the same time. So that's where they're going to celebrate it. But, uh, you know, what the American Coaster Enthusiasts do, this is right up their alley. You know, it, it, sure, they love riding roller coasters, but they also like, um, you know, being able to create awareness for the roller coaster for amusement and theme parks. And this is another way that they're doing it by having these different events on June 16th at these parks. Yeah, that's that's so cool. Um, it, so I understand that you were involved in the 100th anniversary celebration in 1984. I was one year old, by the way. I was. 
Okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, Carl Eichelman and I, uh, we were riding roller coasters at Kings Island almost daily. Carl was riding the Beast. I was riding the Racer. I was approaching 5,000 rides. The public relations manager at the time, Ruth Voss, uh, decided that on this day, the way Kings Island was going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the roller coaster was going to be by having meet and greets with Carl Eichelman and I on International Street near the band uh, stand. They'd set up a table. We were going to, uh, you know, meet guests. They had uh, these glossy 8x10 pictures of us on our rides uh, for us to sign. But the uh, Cincinnati Enquirer, in their article that they had about, you know, things to do this weekend, you know, they pictured both of us and said, you know, meet roller coaster, not enthusiast, meet roller coaster um, inventors, Carl Eichelman and Don Helbig at Kings Island. So uh, guests were coming up to us asking us, you know, do we have any design ideas for what's going to replace the bat? you know, which was still standing but not operating there at Kings Island that year. Uh, you know, what's the best coaster we've designed? Uh, you know, do we prefer steel or wood? You know, those kind of things. So these people, uh, based on what they read, thought that we were, um, you know, innovators of roller coasters, designers, engineers, you know, and not just a couple of roller coaster enthusiasts riding the same rides over and over again. So did you play it off or did you tell them the truth? Well, we told them that, uh, you know, you know, we just, uh, you know, I ride the racer, he rides the beast, that kind of a thing. Now, Carl and I thought we should sign each other's, you know, a glossy picture for each other just so we could say somebody came up and asked for an autograph. You know, so we were you know, thinking nobody was even going to come up and talk to us. But, you know, people did. Um, but it was fun. And that was, um, you know, I still have the T-shirt that I had uh, that the park gave us for that day to uh, wear when we were around the park and doing the signings and things. But, uh, you know, that was really my first uh, awareness that, it, you know, about LaMarcus Thompson and what he had created was to, um, you know, start learning about, you know, where roller coasters came from. You know, at that time I knew about the racer and I knew about the Kings Island rides, but I wasn't real knowledgeable about the whole industry and, and the history of the roller coaster up until that day. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, you know, we're looking at almost 140 years ago, the roller coaster was invented. Um, you know, and it, I think that the most uh, technologically impressive roller coaster uh, type uh, that that I think of as far as like, you know, there was old wooden coasters, which was an old mine thing where mules pulled it up the hill versus today is like the linear synchronous motors and stuff where literally nothing touches the train, but it forces it at 60 to 80 miles an hour. I think that's so cool. Like that's that's not numb on me yet. <laughs> no, I mean, where it started to where it is today. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, mind blowing. Where do you what direction do you think roller coasters are going in the next hundred years? Do you think they're going taller, faster, that sort of thing? Or do you think it's going to be more like Guardians of the Galaxy where it's a more of an immersive experience? I think the the immersive experience is certainly, you know, the way you're going to see a lot of uh, the new roller coasters over the next several years go. I don't know that you're going to see a ton of, uh, you know, these record, you know, breaking coasters that, you know, go, you know, 300 plus feet tall and, you know, go over 100 miles an hour. I don't know that, uh, you know, I, I think that era is kind of, uh, you know, slowed down a little bit. Uh, you might, you're still going to see some of them, but it's not going to be the rage. Everybody trying to top each other. I think now you're looking at just delivering the best experience you can for your guest. I think we're also getting back to that point to where, um, you know, there's more than just that thrill seeker who wants, you know, that kind of an experience. You want to have rides that everyone can do together. Uh, you know, families are going to want to do, and that's where rides like Mystic Timbers at Kings Island, you know, not the biggest, not the fastest, not the longest but just a great ride that guests love. And I think you're going to see more of those kind of attractions, you know, either something that's 
you know, very immersive with the theming or just something that everybody can do together. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Another good example would be like Fire Chaser Express at Dollywood, where it's, um, you know, I went there last year with a, a, a couple of friends and they have a, they had, at the time he was five years old. He loved that ride. He was scared of the fire part. He would always want to hold whoever was right next to him's hand. But, um, and it's not like it's boring. It's not like a little wacky warm or anything. It's, it's uh, a pretty intense ride, but they remove the elements that would be too intimidating for a small child. And as a result of that, they can accommodate a small child. So I think that's, uh, that's some really good insight. Um, I, I think everything runs in trends though. I think maybe in 10 or 15 years, you're going to have, you know, 400 feet, 500 feet, 600 feet fast. You know, I, I think we'll see that again, you know, because every time that an era passes, we think it's dead, you know, and it always comes back. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many times um, people have thought that live entertainment in parks was dead, you know, that it was just a novelty. They put very minimum cash into it. Uh, and nowadays it's seeing a resurgence because surveys are saying that families want more to do together besides rides, you know, and then eventually we're going to hit a point where the 18 year old's like, well, what about me? That's when you start putting in the fast rides and stuff. And then families are like, well, I can't ride the fast ride, you know, so it, it ends up being a balance, you know, it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, everything works in cycles right now. We're kind of in a special event cycle, uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, but yeah, as far as a 500 foot coaster, not anytime soon, maybe someday though. Why not? That polar coaster thing in Orlando or, or wherever that's supposed to be built nowadays, that could be cool. Or, I mean, who knows? I don't know who would front the money for that though. All right. So Don, near and dear to both of us, Kings Island. 50 years old. Tell me some of your thoughts on your memories of Kings Island. Well, I've been going there every year since the park opened in 1972. Obviously, I remember my first ever visit there. Now, I was there at Coney Island, uh, the predecessor to Kings Island, on the last day, September 6, 1971. I remember the speech that you hear at the start of the uh, fun fireworks and 50 nighttime spectacular show uh, that Kings Island is showing. Uh, so I remember that speech and just hearing how, you know, Kings Island was going to be, you know, beyond your wildest imagination. And, you know, we were very excited about it. Uh, you know, Coney was the big thing we did as kids. You know, we would go um, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day. That was our big thing. We weren't going on vacations to like Florida and everything. Coney Island was our thing. Uh, so Kings Island was a little bit further out. Uh, we weren't going to be able to go as often you know we're gonna be able to go once a year maybe twice a year it was a lot more expensive than than coney island was where it was basically you know just pay as you go in terms of what you wanted to ride back then um, but i remember that first visit just walking in and just how uh, magical you know it was it's still magical today to me you know 50 years later i still get that same feeling when i'm out on international street and i look around uh, but i remember that uh it was my first introduction to roller coasters my first ever ride was on the racer i did not ride the shooting star at coney island i could have last day the park was open i went through i sat in the seat uh the train in front of it as it was going through the helix it just had this loud screeching sound and at my age you know it frightened me i wanted no part of it so i got out uh, biggest regret that i have as a uh you know in my in my career in the amusement theme park industry, I did not ride the shooting star, but the racer was my introduction to, to roller coasters. And really when I look from that point on, uh, you know, I, I could look at it honestly and, and say, you know, especially over the last 41, 42 years that, uh, 
you know, Kings Island has probably meant more to me than almost anyone because of just the things, the opportunities that it's presented, uh, just all the fun and everything that I had. Uh, you know, was, I, there a lot of other things I could have done with my life than spending, you know, the 1980s riding the racer over and over again. Uh, but nobody had more fun than me. So those are the kind of memories that I have is just, you know, how much fun it was. The people I met, the, the lifelong friends, uh, you know, uh, that, that I've met there. So uh, those are the kind of memories that, uh, you know, come to mind. There's not one place around Kings Island that I can go where I'm not looking at a building, you know, or a ride or, or you know, the Eiffel Tower, anything like that, where there's not some memory that comes to mind. I remember people that worked that ride. I remember my first time I rode that ride. You know, I remember writing something in the rain, you know, just all those different kind of things that uh, just come to mind. Uh, no matter where you go in the park, there's a memory there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And you know what's kind of funny is that, um, you know, with Kings Island or any amusement park, people typically associate it with rides. Um, but I was kind of going through and originally when we were going to do this segment, what I wanted to do was like, OK, my top three visits ever. But what was funny about it was. My top three visits are never because of rides. It's never like my first ride on the beast or anything like that. Uh, my top three were, um, uh, one of them was my first, uh, there was an event from Coaster Buzz called Beast Buzz. Like in 2004, we were celebrating the Beast 25th And I got to see the backstage stuff. So that was like the coolest thing ever. And I had so much fun that day. And I met so many new people and... Um, I met Tom Raby, the owner of PTC. I thought that was like like he that was like meeting Elvis for me at the time. Um, so that was one of my favorite visits. Uh, the day that Robbie Knievel made his jump was so freaking magical, and uh, you had me involved in that in a lot of ways because you know, I ran the fan site at the time, and you know, so I spent the whole week with them as did not to the extent you did, but you know, I saw him several times that week and got to know him, and I was actually kind of worried about him as a human being. And then to be so happy for him when he landed that jump and to see how excited it was and the electricity in the air, like that, that may forever be my favorite day at the park, you know? Um, then the other one was kind of unique is uh, you threw an event in 2009 called Ride Warrior Coaster Weekend. Like, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that wasn't my favorite day. Um, my favorite day was actually the day before that. And and uh, and it plays into my thing because Ride Warrior Weekend was that was my favorite event I've ever been to really because you know you just open Diamondback and so on but all my friends that had moved away and I separated with just over the last ten years all came to the park and I remember it was the night before it and everybody was in town and it was pouring down raining and I was just sitting on the front porch of uh, what's now the it might have still been at the time but now it's the Antique Photos Building in Rivertown. And just watching the rain and catching up with friends and stuff. And I, I absolutely cherish that. I don't think we got to ride anything that day. We did plenty of riding during the Ride Warrior thing. But that that memory just sticks out with me. Just everyone was back and everyone was home. And that's what the park means. You know, it's not so much about rides and stuff. And that's why I don't, I don't really relate to, um, you know, 10,000 racer. Like, I don't know how many coaster credits. I'm not that kind of guy. But for me, it's about the experiences you have. I just love going, and that's where I connect with friends. It's like the city hall or the the town square, you know, when everyone comes together and you get to see people and converse and have fun. And that's what I love about it. That's why it never gets old uh, to me, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, yeah, there are those milestone rides that I did on, on the racer and, you know, other attractions around the park. But uh, that is not the biggest memory. I mean, while those rides were there, it was really the people – uh, that I met the associates working there, you know, so that's where I 
you know, I remember most over the 50 years is the people that I met. That becomes, uh, you know, to the forefront when I'm thinking about Kings Island and the memories is just those those people, the relationships, you know, that, that I have with those people to this day. And, uh, you know, again, as I mentioned before, just walking around the park and wherever I look, you know, somebody comes to mind, you know, that worked there. So uh, that's that's a big part of it for me is that. And uh, just, you know, those special events, too. You mentioned Robbie Knievel. I mean, what an interesting time that was for me. You know, I came from professional hockey. I'd done that for 18 years. And then I, um, you know, get the Kings on the next year in the spring. We're bringing in Robbie Knievel. And uh, that was one of those, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore moments for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Having to deal, you know, with that and, uh you know, wasn't, uh, it was just easy to get, uh, you know, to, to get the word out and get the media interested in what he was doing and all of that part came together like everything else always did. Um, but just to, to, to manage his day to day and make sure, you know, he was where you needed him to be when you needed him to be there. I mean, those kind of things, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, 24 seven, 365 for a couple of weeks there. Yeah. Uh, cause it's funny because you've never, I mean, I guess with some exception, because I didn't really have involvement in every celebrity you brought in, but the three that I can think of that you brought in uh, that I was involved with and I met outside of the actual day of the event was Robbie Knievel, who was a unique individual to say the least. Um, and then there was like Rick and Nick Walinda. Let's bundle them together. Nick's a little bit more of a normal person. Rick is more of like the carny type where he's like quirky and stuff. Both were really nice. Uh, Nick, I'm actually uh, friends with on Facebook still, so he still does his thing, you know. Um, and then, uh, of course, the uh, half pint brawlers, uh, probably the finest moment of Kings Island. Um, but yeah, the uh, all three of those were such unique situations, you know. Um, the half pint brawlers, I remember you left me to entertain them for about three hours one day, and it was like they were so rambunctious that it was like dealing with toddlers but they were so funny like i i don't know i mean we had a lot of fun with that because remember we cut those uh we, we did those little video shorts for social media of them trying to clean the hearse and you know all that stuff so what great memories you know uh for those of you who don't know puppet the psycho dwarf the, the the head one uh passed away a couple years ago uh we're not really sure you know what happened but uh, dwarfs have a tendency to have a lot of medical issues. So my understanding is that he died at his home peacefully asleep. So God rest his soul, you know? Yeah. I mean, they were a lot of fun. You know, the Walendas were, were great to work with and, you know, I keep in touch with Nick. Uh, you know, he's gone on to do, I mean, different walks that have made national, uh, you know, headlines out there, but that walk that he did at Kings Island, you know, how high up he was and going outside the front gate over the fountain, you know, at the 264 you know foot uh level at the eiffel tower to go that high you know and it was a little bit windy day uh, when he was doing that walk so that was probably you know the one day of all the different things that i've done where you know i, I was pretty confident robbie would at least you know be okay if he didn't make it he would you know still be okay um but you know nick you know there was no you know, no netting, you know, no safety devices, anything up there. I mean, he was walking and, uh, you know, so that was the one time that I was kind of pacing back and forth a little bit when he was doing it. Uh, uh, but then again, you know, you just know that's what they do to them. That's, you know, whether it's five feet up or, you know, 300 feet up, it's the same walk for them. Yeah, I don't believe that. I think he was saying that to calm your nerves because there's no way that five feet up versus 260 feet up in the wind is the same thing. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not a, I'm not a circus person. <laughs> 
but I do understand when to an extent. <laughs> but uh, what a day! Uh, yeah, but it was fun, you know. And those are the memories that you know that you and I have is you know seeing those kind of uh, events at the park and meeting those people and uh, you know like the different event you know the events with media days and uh, you know new attractions opening and being a part of that. You know, going back to my days as a pass holder, you know. Uh, all the new rides that opened from, you know, 1982 on, I was pretty much there, one of the first riders and all those things before I started working at the parks. There's just so many memories with, with different things there. Yeah. So let me ask you this because you, you, I, I've asked you this before to kind of make fun of you, but I'm kind of hitting that point in life now. How does it feel to be there when a ride is installed? It takes its last ride and then it's torn out and replaced like with it, because for me, it's like with the vortex, that was torn down, you know, a few years ago, but I was like three when they put it in. So for as far as I'm concerned, it was always there, you know, but something like Firehawk, like I remember sitting there and waiting for it to open on the first day. Now it's gone, you know, or, or you know, Son of Beast was kind of a unique situation, but it's kind of similar with that. You know, it's like, it, do you, does that ever get, do you ever just accept that a status quo of you? Because for me, it's like when you open a new ride, I feel like we're going to have it forever. But I'm coming to the point in my life where I'm starting to realize that, like, you know, the 30-year service life of these rides kind of creeps up on you. Yeah, they all have a shelf life. You know, every every ride out there does. Eventually, they're not going to be there. I mean, some, like the Grand Carousel approaching 100 years, you know, are going to be there a little bit longer. But there's other rides, maybe it's 15, 20 years that they have. But when you're with it from the beginning, you know, and you see that first footer go on the ground, you know, the, the first uh, uh, support go up, the first test run you know, all those kind of things. And then the ride's not there anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard. It is hard because you, you become emotionally invested in these rides. Uh, they're a part of you, you know, they're things that, uh, you know, you've been involved with, uh, you know, from its infancy and, uh, you know, no, nobody ever wants to see, you know, when you work on the park side, you never ever want to see an attraction go, but, uh, you know, you have to make those hard decisions sometimes and, uh, you know, you move on to the next one. It's, uh, you know, no different than, uh, you know, if you're a big sports fan, you know, and you, and you have a favorite player, I mean, there's going to come a time where, you know, they're at the end of the line too, and they have to retire and you just have to, you know, accept it and you move on to the next player. So it's the same kind of a, a mindset that you have to have a little bit with that, you know, that that day's going to come. Um, but it's never one of those things that's an easy decision uh, for anybody that has to make that decision uh, to remove an attraction. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the one that really kind of, um, it's not the same situation, but I mentioned it before, like with Vortex, uh, Vortex was pretty rough in the end. You know, it's old Arrow Looper, um, way past its prime. I mean, let's be honest here. I was like a once a year person the last like five or six years because I feel like when I wrote it, um, I would wake up with like a sore neck in the morning. But to me, it's kind of like, you know, you live in a house in a neighborhood and your neighbor's house gets torn down. And it's like, well, I didn't live there, but it's weird not having it. You know, it's weird not having that house up the street or whatever. And that's how it really felt with Vortex because, you know, although it wasn't a ride that I liked to ride, um, you know, in the end, it was such a great backdrop for the park. It's just, it, it's just weird not having it. But again, you know, they only last so long. And especially, you know, with that aero technology and stuff, like that was right before you know, they got to the point where you could easily replace track pieces and so on, because a lot of it was welded. A lot of it was welded on site, you know, so it gets really expensive to replace that stuff. And that's why, you know, aero development doesn't really make stuff anymore. Uh, not, not in that incarnation, but, you know, all of its days will come. And uh, it's really sad. It kind of is, isn't it? 
Yeah, and you know, for me, and because I'm old, you know, I remember the park when it first opened. So, you know, our guest today will say it doesn't look the same without having, you know, the vortex there. But when I look at it in that space, I remember, you know, there being nothing there. You know, it was before the bat. So, I mean, I remember it looking like it does kind of right now without anything there. So it's not as difficult for me to, to walk by there all the time and say, well, it doesn't look right without something there. Um, because I remember when it wasn't there. So let me ask you this. When you tell, when you're having a conversation with an average person, let's say under the age of 25 or so, and you tell them something, do they ever not believe you? They, it's like, they just never heard. Like somebody who's regular to King's Island, like, I don't believe you that there was like a, a Varian beetle or whatever. You ever run into an experience like that? Because I had a pretty wild one. I mean, sometimes, you know, they're going to bring up and that's any park, you know, that's out there that I've gone to where they'll bring something up where they don't recall it being there. They recall it differently than it was, Um, you know, or they'll remember a ride, um, you know, they're not happy because they're like, you, you've got trim brakes on this right now where the ride always had brakes in some kind of fashion. It wasn't maybe the same technology, but there were always brakes in those spots. And, you know, so you see that throughout the whole, you know, industry where, you know, people will say it's not as good as it used to be, but they don't know because they weren't around back then. So, uh, but it is what it is with that. And uh, I think that, um, you know, when, you, when you're talking to that everybody has their own, you know, in, in their own mind, how something was. Yeah. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, because I, I, I know where you're getting at. Like a lot of people are like, oh, when I rode the Beast in 79, it didn't have trims, even though it did. It's just got magnets. Now. But OK, so the last time. I hosted an event at Island, which would have been almost 10 years ago. Um, there were these two girls that were 17, 18 years old, and I was helping them clean up after we ate in the IR. And I mentioned something about Paramount owning the park. They were like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, like Paramount, like when Paramount on the park, they're like Paramount, like the movie studio. I was like, yeah, they used to own this park. They're like, no, they did. And it was, what's funny is like, to me, it was like yesterday. To them, they were too young to remember that. You know, 2006 is when it changed hands. And <laughs> they just, they blatantly didn't believe me. It's such a big, to, well, it's funny because Cedar Fairs are in the park longer than Paramount did now. But it, it, I still feel like, I still wake up every once in a while and think like, Cedar Fair bought Kings Island? You know, it's been, you know, so long now, but it's still like such a weird thought. But um, yeah, they... I mean, but think about this. If anyone that... You know, if if you're under, if you're under the age of like fifty, you really don't have a, a, a good memory of the beast when it opened in 1979. Yeah. You just don't. Uh, you don't have a memory if you're under sixty of Kings Island from the 70s. I mean, you've so, seen pictures, but you just don't. You know, or you don't remember, you know, Walt Disney World in the 70s. You don't remember it. You know, if you're if you're you know, younger than 60, you just don't. So, I mean, those are the kind of things too that, uh, you know, come to play, but everybody's heard things, they've seen pictures and, you know, the, it, it gets drawn up, you know, differently than it always is, but. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes there's a revisionist history and sometimes people remember, I mean, honestly, it was like, you know, your memory is always an extreme version of what happened. Yeah. I went to Kings Island in 1981. It was a hundred degrees out and there were 10,000 people you know, in line for the vortex and yeah, yeah, that, that sort of stuff, you know, but at the same time, it's, I went there and like, it was better than Disney world. It's like, well, you know, that's cool. Um, but the truth is in the middle of where, what you remember typically. I mean, that's for you and me and everybody else too. You know, it's, um, I mentioned, um, you know, my favorite visit, uh, one of my top favorite visits was 
that uh, 2004 Beast Buzz. And, um, you know, looking back, it was all stuff that, you know, was, I mean, we did the Beast Tour, which I was particularly excited about, but I was walking around in the dirt, but <laughs> in the heat. But, but for me, it was like, it was so magical. You know, so it didn't matter what, what happened. Like what really happened didn't matter. It was my memory. That's the most important thing. And that's why I cherish the day so much is because it was so much more than it actually was. Now, when you're watching the nighttime spectacular show and it's kind of going through the history of the park, do those kind of memories come flooding back to you? Uh, no, because the uh, they skip over my memory of the park. Um, when I was really okay, so the Brady Bunch thing is an interesting factoid that I come to that I came to um, really kind of embrace when I got involved with the park around 2003. Um, I knew that they had filmed there, but I'd never seen the episode until then. Um, and then Hanna-Barbera, I was, uh, I was, by the time, when I was at the Kittyland age, Hanna-Barbera was so passe at the time that I didn't know who the characters were. Um, so I don't identify with the theme song and stuff. Um, now, one thing that really does hit it with me is Phantom Theater, like Phantom Theater Encore. Like, if you want to strike that nostalgic nerve, that's what does it. Because it, that ride's been gone for 20 years now. And the funny part is, is not only could I name the characters, but I also could identify the actors dressed up as the characters as the characters. Like, that's how well I knew it, you know? So the, the nightly spectacular thing, uh, the Fun Fireworks in 50 doesn't cover Nickelodeon at all. I probably would have identified with that a little bit more. Although by the time I got to that age, I was too old for it. I was kind of on the cusp at that point. Um, but what I think that... I mean, I, you know, it, there's a, that, that section that's about, you know, evil Knievel, and I still kind of get the chills from Robbie Knievel, especially with the fire blast that they have, with the isopropyl alcohol fire blasters by the fountain, um, because he did, he had that for his show, for his jump. So I kind of identify with that, and I still get chills and memories of that, even though that's not necessarily what it's referencing. Although you could argue that it's either one, even though they use the audio clip from the 19, what, 1974? Is that when it was? For evil? When uh, 75. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So the nostalgia thing really, um, it's really narrow for me because I didn't identify with the Hanna-Barbera characters, but far more the Phantom Theater Encore thing is, uh, is what kind of like just tickles me to death because I watch that show when I'm 10 again. I really am, you know, so that, that's why I think it's. So <laughs> yeah. For me, anytime I watch the nighttime spectacular, uh, it really brings everything back full circle for me. Uh, just because, I, like I said, I have that memory from the end of Coney Island to the start of Kings Island to today and all those different songs, you know, that they're they're playing from the different, uh, you know, whether it's the Partridge Family, the Brady Bunch, uh, the Enchanted Voyage, you know, song. But then also the song that was, uh, you know, produced for the show. I mean, just some of the words in that. I mean, it really connects and resonates with me. And I always, um, you know, almost want to tear up when I watch that. I mean, it just really really uh, just brings everything back for me. And I start thinking about all the people again, you know, that I encountered over the years there. Yeah. It, what was funny was right before we recorded our first podcast, I was on uh, the KI, the Kings Island central podcast. And they specifically brought me on to talk about the uh, 50th anniversary, uh, you know, what was going on, like as far as the merchandise and the food and the show and stuff. And, you know, um, I was having that conversation with their, uh, their media director, Brad, and, he was kind of like, well, describe the show. And I, I was at a loss for words. And all I could really muster up was 
it's the only thing that I can think of that would be a fitting tribute to the 50th anniversary of a place that's so special to me and you and everybody else. You know, it's, it's really incredible. It's spectacular. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm so glad that's the direction that they went. You know, it, it's something to see. It's something we can brag on as fans. Like you got to come to. So, um, you know, and I've rarely heard a negative word about it. You know, in fact, um, some people, uh, I had a friend that just got back from Disney World, you know, and we had that experience and he came back and he was like, this is incredible. So imagine being that numb to like high class entertainment and then seeing something at a seasonal park and still being blown away. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. And, uh, you know, but again, 50 years, lots of memories. We both have them. Uh, Ryan, this has been a, a fun episode, an interesting episode. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we ran a little long this time. So, um yeah, uh, I appreciate everyone listening. By the way, uh, sincerest thanks, first of all, to getting to the end of this episode. Um, and secondly, um, you know, our, the feedback has been very positive from everybody. So uh, on behalf of Don and I, we really do appreciate your support. And we, we really do thank you for listening and putting up with us and hopefully learning something and, uh, you know, not trashing us on social media where we can see it. You know, so thank you so much. Well, speaking of social media, Ryan, tell them where they can follow us on Twitter. And if they follow us, like right now, I think we have one follower, which is me. Um, they can ask us some questions and maybe we'll incorporate it into a future podcast. Yeah. So if you on Facebook, if you look for the attractions group, that's us. So the attractions group is obviously the parent company that we're working with right now. Um, but the attractions group on Facebook essentially is going to primarily focus on our podcast. Um, but on Twitter, if you want to tweet at us and I have to look this up because as Don said, we've got one follower right now. So let's make that different. Okay. So it's at attractions underscore GRP. That's at attractions underscore GRP. Now fans of the podcast, we have one follower and it's Don Helbig. We've never been lower in our lives. We need you to follow us on Twitter. <laughs> So we can interact with you. Um, if you guys want to, you can tweet us questions and, um, you know, we'll address them. Uh, what we could probably do, Don, is uh, if you if anybody has questions about these news articles, about further takes or information, uh, as well as, uh, you know, discussing uh, park apps, feel free to tweet at us uh, and we'll address those questions at the top of the next episode. So we're going to try to upload weekly. Uh, next week might be a little strange, so it might be early or late. Um, you're just going to have to find out. But uh, once again... Twitter at attractions underscore GRP. So everybody, thank you so much for listening. Don, thanks for putting up with me once again, my man. Everybody. It's been fun. Fun ride. Everybody have a good night or a good day, depending on where you're. Thank you.